It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 18th, 2017, the Witch Hunt edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. John Dickerson seems to have been the first person jailed under Trump's new policy of jailing journalists. <laughs> and that's why he's not with us today. I don't know where he is, but I hope he hasn't been jailed. He's not in jail. He's not in jail. Okay. I but feel sure. If we said that he was in jail, would you believe it? I might believe it. I might believe it. <laughs> But that's okay, because visiting from Trumpcast, we have Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate Group. Hello, Jacob. Hey, David. John picked a nice quiet week to take off. Yeah, it's crazy. So you're chairman until the majority of Slate senior staff invoke the 25th Amendment? <laughs> uh, and, we don't have written policies around that. And decide you're, and you're unable to carry out the duties of office? Internet crimes and misdemeanors. I'm not sure what that would be. <laughs> So you feel like you 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 feel like you're pretty much protected from any form of uh, constitutional removal. Well, I can always fire my attorney general. On this week's Gabfest, we will condense years, what could have been years of political drama into a single show. One incredibly exhausting week. Our first topic will be the huge grab bag that is Donald Trump's scandals, namely the possibility of impeachment or other form of removal. The appointment of Robert Mueller as a special counsel in the Russia leak investigation, Trump's own leaks to Russians, the news of Jim Comey's memo that he recorded a conversation, he wrote down news of a conversation where Donald Trump asked him to stop investigating Michael Flynn. That will be a massive first topic. Then, then the sudden uh, and surprising news that Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, died. And we'll talk about Ailes and his legacy and the state of conservative media in the Trump era. And then finally, just a run-of-the-mill dreadful policy topic, the kind of thing we haven't done much recently because there just has been too much political news. Emily is going to fill us in on the attorney general's return to demanding draconian sentences for federal offenders and what that means. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and God knows you need a cocktail. We'll need a cocktail by the time we get through this. And in Slate Plus, we'll talk about Trump's insane theory about exercise and whether it is actually insane. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join. And then before we get started on the show, one more bit of news. As we mentioned repeatedly, we have a live show in Denver, our first show in Denver, in just two weeks, Wednesday, June 7th. Or maybe that's three weeks. Can't tell. I hope it's three weeks. I'm not ready to go in two weeks. <laughs> it's in some some number of weeks. <laughs> and then maybe it is. Maybe it's three weeks. At the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts in Denver, Colorado at 730 on Wednesday, the 7th of June. And we're going to have a special guest. Jacob, thanks to you, I think. Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado is going to join us for the show. So that will make it even more fun. Give him my best. We will. What should we ask him? Any, any, any secret questions that will cause him to collapse? 
Um, well, ask him about his real role in uh, legalization of marijuana in, in Colorado, because a lot of people think he was behind it. But my uh, my memory is that he was against it, but then decided to deal with the fact of it because he couldn't stop it. Okay. We will ask him about it. I'm sure marijuana will come up. Although we want it to be more than marijuana because that's such a cliche. The Washingtonians go to Colorado and talk about marijuana. We have to talk about something else. Too. Yeah, that's true. Well, you won't be short on things to I talk think, about. I think there's news. There'll be news. Get tickets at slate.com slash live for that Denver show on June 7th. It is exhausting keeping up with the machine gun fire of self-inflicted political scandal in Trump world. I had in my notes Tuesday bringing the most astonishing news yet, but probably that isn't right because then on Wednesday there's even more astonishing news. So we have a just a pileup, a pileup of scandalous things happening. So on Monday we learned that the president had in conversations with top Russian officials, including the foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, had revealed the super ultra double triple secret um intelligence that had been apparently collected by Israelis about ISIS and Trump had casually had t- tossed this off to to our uh, Russian enemies. Then on Tuesday came news that Jim Comey, the recently fired FBI director, has contemporaneous records of a conversation he had with Donald Trump in which Donald Trump uh, cleared a room and asked Comey to back off of his investigation of Michael Flynn um, and, and Flynn's uh, Russian ties. And so that prompted yet more outrage. And then on Wednesday comes news that uh, the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has appointed a special counsel, Robert Mueller, who was the FBI director before Jim Comey, to investigate all of the Russian leaks. Emily, what is it that Mueller can and cannot investigate? A special counsel works for the attorney general. He is answerable to the Justice Department, but he has more separation from the Department of Justice than a normal U.S. attorney would. So there was an assumption after Congress let the Independent Counsel Act lapse in 1999, there was an assumption that there had to be some more independent mechanism within the federal government for independent investigations of federal officials, elected officials. And so this is not fully independent, but it's more independent than if we didn't have Mueller in this role. And I feel a lot of personal assurance that it is Bob Mueller who's taking this job. I mean, this is someone who is the FBI director for both George W. and Obama. He's credited with kind of saving the FBI after 9-11. And he is just known as a real straight shooter. He's in the late period of his career. He doesn't really have anything to prove. He has no personal ties to the president. He's basically exactly who you would want in this job. And I also think that Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who we were all kind of ruining and um, confused by last week or the week before when Rosenstein wrote the memo to Trump that gave Trump an excuse to fire Comey, it does seem like Rosenstein has partially redeemed himself by naming Mueller. This is like what I think Rosenstein owed the country for having gone along with um, and provided any kind of cover for justifying Comey. Jacob, does Mueller's appointment mean that the kind of news, the ever mushrooming scandal is likely to become uh, more visible or somehow less. I mean, there's some, some, I think, line of thinking, which says that if there's a special counsel investigating this, the, the kind of the pressure comes off because it, it's all going to get quite secret and closed down as they do probably a very quiet investigation. Right. It gives Sean Spicer the same answer to everything for the next 
year and a half or however long it goes on, which is, well, that's a matter under investigation. We can't comment. Now, they haven't been so restrained in, in using excuses like that, but it does it, – it is a way of making it go away for a while. That's a possible downside. And it's part of the reason why I think an independent counsel by itself is not enough. There needs to be a, conve- a congressional investigation uh, by a special joint committee or some kind of select committee because there's a, there's a public accountability aspect to this too. I mean, part of what has to happen in this kind of scandal is justice has to be done and people who broke the law should be indicted and prosecuted if if necessary, if justified. But there's also a question in the in the public realm, in the policy realm, what happened and how you fix it. You don't do that with a special counsel. Emily, do you think there's there's now more or less likelihood that Congress is going to up its own investigation? Or do you think they're going to – the Republicans are going to take this opportunity to say, well, Mueller's on it. We we just we're, – we're going to step away. We shouldn't be, really be doing anything. Well, I think Jacob's right. That's the danger here. And Congress still absolutely has to step up um, for exactly the reason that Jacob gave. That is the public form of accountability. So one question I have is, all of Comey's notes and memos relating to his communications with Trump have been subpoenaed by these congressional committees that already exist. Is that still going to all be in motion? Is is Comey going to testify publicly? Um, that is something that various people in Congress, I think, including Jason, uh, didn't I think Jason Chaffetz wanted that to happen in yeah. his committee. That seems really important. Why to me. wouldn't he testify publicly if Mueller's now investigating? I mean, I hope that he will. But if you take Jacob's logic to the next step, you could imagine Congress saying, well, now Mueller's got this. We don't want to interfere. We're not going to ask Comey to come after all. I think that the ball has rolled too far down the hill for that to happen. That would seem to be, I mean, and, and I think it would also just be the wrong call. So anyway, once Comey testifies publicly and those memos if they can be disclosed or part of the public record, then that creates a whole other, obviously, opportunity for news and creates its own momentum. So that makes me wonder whether the fact that those events have already been set in motion will help prevent the total close down that um, that we're fearing. And the other thing to keep in mind is just that the leaks from wherever they're coming from in the government have just been like a faucet turned on. It's hard to imagine them going away. The, so the president this morning, Jacob, uh, tweeted that this was a witch hunt. Is it a witch hunt? Well, is, is he in <laughs> fact been treated worse than any other politician ever? Which he and also he told the Coast Guard graduates. Keep it, keep it coming. I say. I mean, I'm kind of disappointed when he goes off Twitter now for 24 hours. I was kind of relieved to see him back this morning. I'm with just like a dysfunctional expectation. But no, of course. I mean, the metaphor of a witch hunt is, you know, is is partly flawed because it it begs the question: there were no witches. Uh, but when you say I'm the victim of a witch hunt, you're you're presuming your own innocence and. Uh, we can't presume his innocence. That's the problem. There's too much evidence that he and members of his campaign, members of his in- administration may have done something terribly, terribly wrong. But that's what with, with Mueller in charge. And I think it's a fantastic appointment. And I certainly would echo what em- Emily said about Rod Rosenstein, at least partially redeeming himself. We may look back on this week as the moment we went from the disease getting worse to the cure starting. I mean, this is the beginning of what needs to happen to properly investigate Trump and hold him accountable. Should, should we? Ass- it was the first time I felt like we lived in a country with the rule of law for a little while. 
like, okay, this is what's supposed to happen. There are grownups and they are coming to have the proper mechanisms play out as opposed to like, oh, the president can fire whoever he wants and close down an investigation, right? It's, it, this feels like the constitutional structures are actually going into gear. Should, should, as citizens, should we be glad that the business of government will basically grind to a halt over the, until this works its way through. The fact is that all this um, scandal has completely taken up everyone's total energy, which means that government really isn't doing anything. I mean, they're, they're not able to accomplish anything. Is that okay? Well, I think it, it's reasonable and right for Chuck Schumer and the Democrats to have a set of demands about the rule of law and democratic norms as as the price for doing normal business. I mean, I don't think they should shut the government down. But when it comes to considering any legislation Trump wants, I think to me that should still be contingent on agreement from the Republicans to to properly investigate. Right. I was working on a piece this week with um, Eric Posner, who's a law professor at the University of Chicago, and he used this term, the idea of a kind of constitutional receivership for the presidency, that when the other branches see that you have this weakened, dysfunctional, kind of out of control um, White House, that maybe they have a responsibility to essentially limit the damage it can do by refusing to cooperate and do business as usual. And David, this also goes to your complaints about executive power. I mean, this is a moment for reigning in executive power, right? Right. And it is, it's going to be a real test for the Republicans in Congress, which they will fail. Are they willing to act as a, as a sound legislative body or not? Are they willing to actually act as you know, the co-equal branch of of uh, government. And I think you have to ask, why aren't they doing that? You know, the metaphor you always hear is sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Is this the straw that broke the camel's back that will get Republicans to finally abandon Trump, investigate him, do their job? And I actually think it's the wrong metaphor because a Republican congressman does not think that way. He is an exquisitely calibrated machine designed to win re-election. And right now, the threat to winning re-election coming from not distancing yourself from Trump is very small. But the threat that might still come from being challenged in a Republican primary or being attacked on Fox News or being attacked by Trump in his Twitter feed is still pretty large. And that's why, you know, there there are a couple now, Justin Amish, is that how you say his name? Amash, and there's another congressman from Florida who've actually used the I word, the impeachment word, not saying they're for it, but that it's sort of a, a topic that needs well, needs to be addressed. But Amash is his own party of one. He's a, He doesn't He's a real libertarian. He's he's really out on his own. I don't think he the represents Florida anything. The Florida congressman is in a swing district. That's the interesting thing is at what point are you more worried – are the congressmen in swing districts more worried about losing to a Democrat uh, as opposed to the, the much larger number of congressmen with safe seats who are worried about the attack from the inside their party? Well, do you think there is any moment in which that happens? I think the cal- a couple of things have to happen for that calculation to change, but I don't think it's a calculation of how bad Trump's misdeeds are. I think, first of all, it's looking over your shoulder to see what everybody else is doing. But it is, you know, Trump's approval rating among Republicans has to get down from the high 80s. Maybe I haven't seen a poll in the last couple of days. It's like you know, 82, 84. Yeah. yeah. When that gets down in the 60s, then all things become possible. And I think you will start to see the swing district Republicans abandon him and, you know, at least support a, an investigation. But Emily, given how partisan the country has become, is it even possible for Trump's 
approval ratings to drop to the 60s among Republicans. Can that even happen anymore? Or are we so locked in and are people so invested in their story and, and they're so buttressed by partisan media on their side, notably on the conservative side. Right. I mean, I don't mean to step on our second topic, but I'm hearing about, reading about, looking on the website of Fox a lot this week to see how they're covering this. Because the moment they turn on Trump, that's when the approval ratings drop. And you could imagine a world in which when the dam breaks, it breaks really fast. I mean, most of these people who are in office, the Republicans in office, don't have a lot of personal love and loyalty for Donald Trump. Like, if you ask them, would you rather have Mike Pence be president? Surely most of them would say, like, oh, please, God, right now, how fast can I, like, sign the letter for that? And yet it is not politically safe for them to do anything like that. And until that changes, I think Jacob is right that they won't. I also think that it's fair for them to not, right? Like, we're not at, we shouldn't actually be at impeachment right now. I don't think we should wait for this investigation to play out. I don't think we want to wait, like, two years and hear nothing about it in the meantime. But it is true that we are still sorting through the facts. And it is fair, I think, to say we need more information before we decide exactly how serious this is and what to do about it. About it. Isn't this where the but this fantasia of the twenty fifth amendment? So this the people, no one had even heard that of the twenty fifth amendment until <laughs> until about a week ago. But now it's everyone's looking at it and saying like, oh, the president can be removed because of his just inability to carry forth the office. The cabinet just needs to vote. Um, I mean, that fantasia comes from this hope that there's. It's like a Deus ex machina that someone else will solve this problem. I in Congress don't have to solve it. Basically, let's. Oh, ma- once the cabinet decides they can do it, they're going to solve it. But I don't. I, as a legislator, don't have to deal with it. It's like you, your drunk friend. Well, their f- family should stage an intervention. Well, that doesn't usually work. And you know, I think the family, the pick, the people Trump picked to support him, are the last people who are going to stage an intervention. Yeah. Also, you know. This is not the moment for the 25th Amendment either. The 25th Amendment is about being in a coma or being in like a serious (laughs) state of dementia or mental illness. I mean, it would feel like a coup if right now the vice president and whatever you want to say about Trump's mental state and unhinged is a word that comes to mind for me, he's not really any different than he was when he was elected. And so I just don't think that it's like the least bit appropriate to imagine that we're at the point where it's time to invoke the 20th. Right. And also, it's not that hard to find impeachable offenses. I mean, people say like, oh, I can't. I I mean, the the emoluments clause is in itself. I mean, just his self-dealing, Hillary Clinton would have been impeached for that by now. That the obstruction of justice on on Comey, whether or not it's 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 criminal, right. whether obstruction it's a of crime, justice, it could be impeachable. It's impeachable. I mean, there 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 are probably twenty impeachable offenses that any reasonable person could could locate if they wanted, if they had the political will to locate it. And I think that's the point, David. It's impeachment is is fundamentally a political question. You know, the the the, the real meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors is abuse of power. And I disagree with Emily a little bit uh, here. I think, amazingly enough, we're already at the point where there are completely creditable articles of impeachment that could be drawn up. And I think it is, number one, obstruction of justice. Number two, corruption, including emoluments. Number three, there's stuff we don't know. We don't know if Russia is fundamentally real or just what looks like a cover-up of something that may or may not have been real. But there are enough charges without, without that being borne out at all. And yet, politically speaking, given that Donald Trump was elected president, what is it, like six months ago? Not long ago. 
the more we know, the better the case, the stronger the case for impeachment is, if that's what it comes to, the more the country is actually going to get behind it. And the other thing is that in terms of like how democracy functions and persuading people of an outcome, if the 2018 elections happen first and Trump's, he wouldn't personally be repudiated, but if the Republican Party is repudiated at the polls, that would be a healthier outcome, wouldn't it? I mean, I know there's a risk here. If you're worrying every day about the harm Trump is doing, then the idea of waiting is frustrating. And I'm not sure it's the right call, but there is a way in which if we let our usual democratic mechanisms... I, I disagree with you about that. Because I think, much as I think there should be, sorry to interrupt you, Emily. No, no, it's fine. Much as I think the repudiation of the polls is valuable and will happen and ought to happen, in terms of the health of the country, it will be much, uh, we'd be much better off if it's a bipartisan impeachment of the president than if the Democrats win and And then come in and do it And then actually couldn't, and actually probably couldn't convict in the Senate. So they probably wouldn't even remove him from office. And what's at stake here is so fundamental in terms of democratic process and rule of law that I just think, I think it's too big a risk. I think the the sooner he gets out of office, the better it's justified and, you know, damn the political consequences. In reality, I think the political consequences of having him be impeached in terms of the 28 elections and Democrats taking back the House, whatever, probably, you know, greater. But I just don't think you should Republicans think about impeachment that way. I don't want to think about impeachment that way. I think the question is whether there is justification, whether it's legal, whether it's constitutional, and whether it's well-advised. And I think that threshold has been met. I'm not ready to be at that threshold as a practical matter until we know more. Emily, can we talk legally about this obstruction of justice question? So, uh, th- that Comey had had notes of uh, this meeting with Trump. Why would this not be a crime of obstruction of justice? Why might it just be the high crime of obstruction of justice? Right. Well, obstruction of justice, you have to prove intent, right? You have to prove state of mind. So when Trump said, I hope you'll let this go to Comey, speaking of the investigation into Flynn, was he trying to interfere deliberately with an investigation or just making a sort of like, you know, casual suggestion? Um, I mean, to me, the intent question doesn't seem that hard. Adam Liptak said the other day, well, it seems like it's in the zone of the crime of obstruction of justice. And he fired him, right? And so said it was because of Russia. Right. The other argument is that since Trump stands at the top of the government and has the power to fire anyone and shut down any investigation, essentially, he can't be guilty of a crime of obstruction of justice. And then there's a separate question of whether the sitting president can ever be indicted of anything, because that would be such a distraction and a lot of um, legal discussion about that. I find those two avenues of um, argument to be just totally unsettling because it really does suggest that the president is above the law. So to me, the easiest place to land is, well, obstruction of justice, you know, whether or not you would indict in a situation like this, you can still see it as a high crime and misdemeanor, which just kind of loops back to where we were before. Before we leave this morass, we haven't really talked about uh, Trump's own leaks to uh, the Russian ambassador and foreign minister this week. Emily, are those high crimes and misdemeanors also? Is when the well, president they're not does- because the president can declassify anything he chooses. It's another like the president is sort of quasi above the law and we've always depended on his basic judgment. Well, but that's um, again, but then you're conflating the crime and the high crime. 
Like he, it's clearly not True. a crime what he did. Is it a True. Does it render him unfit for office? I mean, it doesn't seem to me like it's enough just on its own. But when you look at the pattern of someone who seems so uncontrolled, so subject to his own whims and destructive. I mean, there there was a real cost to that disclosure. There was an Israeli spy who had to be apparently like zoomed out of wherever he was spying on ISIS. Israel is all ruffled. And I haven't heard any diplomatic justification for the disclosure. I mean, Trump said, I have an absolute right to do this. And McMaster claimed it was wholly appropriate. That seemed like wildly implausible. And what we know about the way Trump functions, there's this thoughtlessness that so often seems to inform what he's doing. And so it's really hard to imagine that he had any like broader plan or intent. It was more, and again, I wasn't there, but like, it just seems like something that came flying out of his mouth. I I think I disagree with you, Emily. I think it's an abuse of, I mean, however casual it was, I think it's a, an abuse of power and and a misuse of his office. The president doesn't need a security clearance. He's the only person at that level of government who doesn't. And there are good reasons for him not needing one because you don't want to give the FBI a veto over who, who can be president. But specifically for that reason, the president has an obligation of office not to betray important secrets. And there's not much secret that's more important to keep confidential than the a spy who's getting us the information on ISIS plots against us. And to do it, yes, it's it's maybe more incompetence than malevolence, although it's often hard to draw the distinction. But I think it's an offense. I I, I imagine that when we do get to articles of impeachment, and I think we probably it'll will. Be on the list. I think it'll be on there. I don't think it'll be number one or two, but I think it'll be on there. <laughs> Top fourteen. <laughs> well, you do have you do have Ryan and basically every other Republican has said that careless handling of classified information is was enough to disqualify Hillary Clinton for the presidency. And I don't know how they mobius themselves out of that one, how they untwist mm-hmm. out of that. I mean, They're just not going to talk about it. And you're right, of course. And this was actually damaging. I mean, we never had any evidence that the Hillary Clinton's, you know, email server or supposed misuse of classified information actually did any harm. <sighs> I, what, for <laughs> listeners, David is shaking his head. I, it's just – just before – one last thing on this topic actually, Jacob, which is – so part of the part of the, the, the perverse pleasure I'm taking this whole week is just reading about the, the sufferings of Trump's employees, the people who work in the White House and how, how miserable their lives are, which I'm enjoying every second of. And, and there's this, this notion that Trump may sta- shake up his staff, which is <laughs> awesome. Could he possibly find – he's already got the some of the worst people working for him. Is he going to be able to find people to work for him at this point? Honestly, w- would anyone take a job in that White House now? I mean, you know, he should he should recruit from the ranks of retired kamikaze pilots. I mean, he's – you know, he's he has – people who took this on for whatever mixed motives they did, whether out of personal ambition or desire to in some way protect the republic, they've been so swiftly and thoroughly betrayed and seen their reputations destroyed on such short order that at this point, you know, you'd have to have your head examined to do it. I mean, there's there's just no reason to think the same thing – same exact thing is not going to happen again very quickly. And yet, surely a new set of people will go marching down the gangplank, right? It's the White House, and they'll imagine that they can do it right and save the country or save the Republican Party or save the president. I do. Really? 
I, I think I, you may be pushing the limits. I wonder of that. who would take it. <laughs> It's a good barometer because, you know, uh, rats don't board a sh- sinking ship, right? If people re- on the right really think it's going down, they won't want to get on. That's but right. if, if they think yeah. the reality is I'm going to be there for a few years, it's going to be useful for my career, people have a way of forgetting the negative sides of it, you know, maybe they'll still sign up. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Roger Ailes, the media impresario behind Fox News, died on Wednesday. And Ailes is a malevolent or was a malevolent and baleful force in American life, although a magnificent programmer of television, a brilliant, brilliant creator of something titanic and powerful, but truly a wicked force in, in America. So let's use this time to talk about him and his legacy and then the state of conservative media because his death comes at a really interesting time in conservative media where Fox itself seems to be losing a little bit of its swat, but conservative media is is not. Jacob, what was your immediate thought on Ailes' death? Well, the, uh, no one will miss him particularly at Fox News, even on if, at Fox News, I gather they were not eulogizing him this morning. And I saw they're, they're remodeling the Fox offices. And as part of that, they've completely obliterated what was his executive suite. I mean, the destruction that uh, and the cost to what Ailes did in terms of sexual harassment himself and enshrining this this culture of abuse of women there is is disastrous for Fox. So I don't think, you know, anybody else, anybody even at Fox has particularly positive thoughts about him. But I'm going to push there. I mean, look, he's a monster. Those guys, none of those people would have a job without Ailes. That Fox itself didn't, he imagined it. He, he midwifed it into being. He bottle fed it. Every bit of its genius practically derives from something he did. So it's true. He was an absolute monster and he's a sex criminal. He was a sex criminal, it seems. And and a terrible person, but I don't know how they could they can possibly dissociate themselves so fully from him. I think they're going to try for a lot of reasons, but I think you're right that what Fox News is, it's his creation. It's his Frankenstein monster. They can't say, oh, we have nothing to do with Roger Ailes. It wouldn't exist you know, at any level without Roger Ailes. I think he's a huge figure in terms of 
politics and culture in our age. I mean, I think really he transformed the kind of news we had. He pretty much single-handedly created the right-wing media that defines the right and defines so many things about politics, the way he he managed to merge news and entertainment. People will write bio, more biographies of Roger Ailes as a transformational figure. And I think those transformations, along with his personal behavior, are almost all to the bad. But I don't think you can deny how significant and huge his accomplishment was. Right, but you were just denying how significant and huge his accomplishment was. Jacob was yeah. saying that Vox wants to disassociate yeah. itself from him, not that he didn't accomplish anything. And I'm saying nobody misses him personally. I mean, I think he leaves tremendous ill will and rancor and, you know, the it's he was he was such a bad guy personally that I think everybody wants to run as far away from him as possible. But I think the reality was he's a big deal for our society. But maybe Emily Fox's ratings are down in the post-Dales era. Fox has lost some of its mojo. Maybe it needs more of that <laughs> sexist, that mo- monstrous on the sexual villainy. Because as long as they juice up the ratings, who cares? I mean, that was the, the rationale for keeping Bill O'Reilly. But of course, it failed. And it does seem as if the younger branch of the Murdoch family is not willing to have this completely out-of-control um, corporate culture. And then there is a question about whether... Fox, once it's been kind of leashed, will have the same sort of power. But in terms of the actual programming, it doesn't, I mean, maybe they're not doing as good a job of it. But, you know, in the last week, as like, Donald Trump was flailing on so many levels, the a lot of the headlines on Fox were about, you know, liberal meltdown, or many hours of talking about reopening the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails, not to mention this story that's collapsing about Seth Rich, this Democratic operative who was tragically murdered, whose death is now being turned into a total political football by what sounds like completely irresponsible reporting by Fox and a story that they haven't retracted or apologized for. So so I feel like I'm not sure how much the spirit is really gone. Maybe they're just not quite doing it as well. They're in a huge rut because they lost their biggest stars, Bill O'Reilly and, and Megyn Kelly, and they've lost their the genius who presided over the over what they did, uh, as well as the guy, his sort of heir, Bill Shine, who was who had to go. But more than that, I think they have a fundamental problem, which is that the propaganda they're doing now is boring. I mean, there's always been a big propaganda element to Fox, but anti-propaganda, going after enemies, is much more entertaining than propaganda defending the guy in power. And in a moment when there's huge news taking place, to be the news channel where people don't get the news but instead get this weirdo propaganda, it's just not uh, – Roger Ailes would know that doesn't work. So the conservative media is at this moment of, of great power. It's clearly – you know, Trump is is nourished by it and it's, it helped him rise. But its basic premise has been victimology. It's been living on victimology for a decade. What does it do when it can't be victim? That's the problem when you win. They need a new enemy, right? I mean, this is the trotting out of Hillary Clinton is boring and seems kind of pathetic at this point, right? It must even to some of people in their audience feel like it's played out and spent. I think Trump had a good idea about how to do this when he started attacking the press. Like the more he can make this about him versus the New York Times, the Washington Post and 
the mainstream television media, the better. And if Fox could find a story about one of those outlets that could really turn into like a character and a soap opera with a narrative, they need some, they need Hillary Clinton too. And it's hard at this moment to see who that person is. I also don't think the efforts to turn Chuck Schumer into that person, he's not interesting either. There's a kind of missing juice here. I think that helps explain why the, they went with the crazy Seth Rich idea. That has like all these Vince Foster overtones to it. Yeah. Jacob, how do you distinguish the place that Fox has in the conservative media landscape, Breitbart has, and then anyone else you want to care to add in there? Do they occupy different ecosystems? Because you've talked about Fox's, because his ratings are down. Breitbart has risen literally from nothing to enormous audience. Yeah, and you know, Drudge still plays a role a drudge, too right. in 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 raising these stories and injecting them. I mean, there's a it's a bit of of the old hierarchy that you used to have in a less partisan news environment with the, with the supermarket tabloids and the New York City tabloids, and then you know certain websites. There's stories that aren't respectable enough to be initiated on Fox News, like this. Seth Rich story, but they can certainly start in, on Breitbart where half of the things are half true um, and the other half aren't true at all. Or, you know, or on Drudge where there's just even less sense of responsibility and then they make their way to, to Fox. But it's a complicated, I mean, Slate started this feature covering the conservative press every day. It's very interesting and not completely predictable in all the ways you want. It is, I do think they're suffering overall from exactly what Emily said, the lack of a good Satan. That's what drives them. And they don't really have a Satan, a credible Satan figure right now. Do you think that, that people in conservative media would rather be losing? They'd rather be out of power but have a, a villain to attack than be in power and, and have to support a Trump or a, a Ryan? Rupert Murdoch? Yeah, I do think that. I think I think he's fundamentally a businessman trying to make money and when the station is thriving. You know, he could be very opportunistic. I mean, he had moments of cozying up to Hillary Clinton and Obama and with Murdoch and and I think this follows for Fox generally. Ultimately, the the commercial motive trumps the political motive. But then why haven't you seen the programming switch as the ratings are going down because they can't well, betray they can't their audience on a dime right they can't right they can't suddenly they have to find a way to find a new satan that that this is their audience though i Do still you, think it's possible for them to eventually turn on trump just not yet so ailes's legacy in addition to fox is of course this incredible culture of sexual harassment and misbehavior that seemed to have pervaded the organization do you think that's the last one of these we're ever going to see it it felt like that you really couldn't get away with having an organization like that in this century anymore. Um, and yet I suppose they got away with it until 2015. But can that kind of completely sexist nightmare world for women persist? Well, I think if it can't survive at Fox News, then maybe the answer is no. I mean, it's hard to really imagine it ever completely disappearing because we have lived in that with that possibility of sexist culture for so long. But it was really interesting to watch Ailes and O'Reilly. You could imagine, from their point of view, this feeling all kind of surprising and unfair. They were just playing out these ways of treating women that were 
you know, completely taken for granted not very long ago. And Do you they think were Ailes, in- Jacob, ended his life as a feeling like a victim? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he was uh, – he felt very betrayed by – he got a big cash settlement. But, you know, it's funny. I had this experience with him in this town upstate where where he had a house and tried to take over everything, including he, he – bought the newspaper and, you know, we had a little mini version of, of Fox News up there. And uh, ultimately, he was sort of, he lost, he was driven out. He gave up, um, gave up the newspaper, sold his houses, moved to Florida. I think he was, I think he was quite ill at the end. Um, but it it's hard to imagine he saw, he didn't, he didn't experience his world completely collapsing around him. How do you think the Republican Party would be different without Ailes? Ailes had not created what he'd created. That's a great question. I think uh, to a large extent, it would still be much more dominated by the legacy of Ronald Reagan. Uh, I think Ailes created tonally a very different party from from Reagan's party and also in terms of the shift from Reagan conservatism to populism focused on issues like immigration. I think Ailes enabled that. What what in particular? I mean, immigration is one good example. What what are the Reagan ideas, which have been abandoned, that they would actually have, or is it a matter of sort of tone and who you appeal to, as opposed to ideas? Just adding to David's question. I mean, I would I would add uh, free trade and and um, liberal economic policies generally, but also internationalism. You know, the Reagan Party was idealistic in a certain way. However, it pursued those goals. It talked about human rights. It pr- talked about the advance of democracy, and none of those things are of much interest to Fox News viewers or were to Roger Ailes or to certainly to the party of Trump. I mean, I think the shift uh, to a populist nationalist framework for politics, which m- matches what ha- has happened on the right in a lot of other parts of the world, uh, I think is, is – you can't attribute it all to Ailes personally, but Ailes was the vehicle for it. How much of you, the – the fact that Americans' first identification now often is political, that the partisanship has become this this incredibly important way that people separate themselves. How much of that do you think is a product of Fox and how much of that do you think was independent of Fox? Well, I think a huge amount of it comes from Fox, but but not all directly because I think it's partly because Fox was so successful that that then became the model to emulate and people have tried with much less success to emulate it on the left. But the whole idea of partisan media starts not just with Fox, but then with MSNBC trying to do some version, you know, without getting it right on the left. And, you know, the, the filter bubble world we live with now, which people often think is a product of social media and Facebook, really got going on talk radio and with cable news and then was transplanted over to social media where it thrives. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Emily, what did Jeff Sessions do this week? 
Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions changed the charging policies for federal prosecutors, telling them that they have to charge the most serious charge that they think they can reasonably prove. And what this really is about is increasing punishments, mostly for fairly low-level drug offenders. So when you end up being prosecuted in federal court, if you're a low-level drug offender, it's usually because you're part of some larger group. Federal prosecutors only prosecute about 10% of the crimes overall in the whole country, but they do a lot of drug prosecutions. And it's usually because they're interested in, they think they have some big players, but to get the big players, there often are much smaller players who get caught up. So under Eric Holder, President Obama's attorney general, there was this move to not necessarily name the weight of the drug that everyone in the conspiracy was being held responsible for, because you would end up saddling low-level folks with, like, huge sentences, like 10 and 20-year sentences. And Jeff Sessions is now limiting the discretion of prosecutors to make those kinds of judgment calls. And he his, his rationale for doing that is essentially to kind of reinvigorate the war on drugs. Why the fuck would he do that? <laughs> he has a very 1980s view of crime control. I mean, he was a U.S. attorney in Alabama in the 80s during the crack epidemic, and he either truly believes or finds it useful to say that crime is back on the rise again. This is based on a small uptick, um, mostly attributable to a bunch of mid-level cities, and it's only last year. But he's making a claim that violent crime is about to really surge again, and this is because of the drug trade. It's a really old-school kind of 80s view of crime control and of the war on drugs, but he seems to have a deep ideological attachment to it. I mean, he's also been talking about, you know, increasing marijuana prosecutions, including in states where marijuana is legal. So what you're seeing here is a kind of revving up the engines of federal law enforcement to punish people severely, increase the amount of time they're spending in prison, and to go after more low-level drug offenders. Is this, Emily, an idea that has really been totally discredited? Or is it still legitimate to believe that this kind of harsh, draconian, extensive punishment, um, you know, will reduce crime and and will make streets safer? I think it's been pretty much entirely repudiated. I mean, look, I guess that's not fair. We've had this huge spike in incarceration in this country, and we've also had a crime drop. Now, the crime drop continued way, like, it, the, the lines crossed um, in about 1990. We continued to put more people in prison, even as crime dropped. But um, academics who've studied this say, like, there's some fraction of this, maybe it's a third, maybe it's lower, where you can say that the crime drop is attributable to all these people who are being held in prison. But that doesn't mean you want to keep all of them in prison for a really long time. That's a very costly thing to do. It's also increased with the risk of reoffending because almost all of these folks get out, right? So they're going to come back to the community. The longer they've been separated from it, usually the harder time they have reestablishing ties, finding employment, finding housing. So there are all these ways in which we can really show now, based on the research, how counterproductive this kind of policy is. And I think also a 
lot of the country has changed its mind about nonviolent drug offenders, seeing them as people who a lot of them need treatment, not necessarily prison. And then there's just marijuana in itself. I think something like 70% of the country now thinks that it's a bad idea to send people to jail for either possessing or distributing small amounts of marijuana. Emily, my question is how much of an actual as opposed to symbolic impact does this really have? I mean, most prosecutions are state prosecutions. Most people in prison are in state prison. You know, the federal government changes its policy on how much time nonviolent and marijuana offenders should serve. Is that going to affect thousands of people, tens of thousands of people? It will affect thousands of people, possibly tens of thousands. I mean, you're right. So if you look just at the numbers, what states do matters much more than the federal government. However, the federal government sets the tone. We pay attention at moments like this because there's this national heft to a policy. And we also look to the Justice Department to lead in some way on criminal justice policy. So to the extent that this emboldens other old school prosecutors and kind of invigorates them in the states to pursue these kinds of policies, that's important. And I also think it matters for the just sort of national story that we tell about crime. If the nation's attorney general is saying, like, we're a, you know, violent crime is, is a terrible scourge on the country again, that kind of soaks into the national discourse and people's feelings about how safe they are. Um, the other question is what the U.S. attorney's offices will really do with this policy. Uh, Session said that you can, if you want to make an exception to charging the most serious offense, you can do that. You just have to, like, write it up and get a lot of permission. But U.S. attorney's offices will retain some discretion. They could charge fewer people, right? If you can't lower the charge to what you think is fair, another possibility is to just not bring the case at all and let it be prosecuted in state court where punishments tend to be lower. So we'll see. It is true, though, that Holder's policy did have an effect. There were over, I think from like 2013 to 2016, there were about 10,000 fewer people who had mandatory minimum sentences. And some of that was because they had cooperated with the prosecution and gotten breaks. But still, you could see a real effect from the change Holder made in terms of how many people were being weighed down with these mandatory minimums. Emily, how does this change relate to the the topic that you've written a lot about, which is the kind of the epidemic of overcharging, the way in which prosecutors at every level look for ways to to pile up pile up charges so that people will take pleas. Well, this is like an example of it, right? I mean, this is Jeff Sessions saying to prosecutors, you don't have the discretion to do anything other than charge the top charge, right? And it was ironic to me, he said that he was taking the handcuffs off of prosecutors. But actually what he's doing is saying that you can't use your discretion to move in a lenient direction toward mercy. You have to do the harshest thing possible. So that is not empowering individual prosecutors. It is the opposite. And the other thing is, it's totally out of step with this really interesting set of changes that really date from November, um, where you're seeing major cities elect progressives as prosecutors on progressive platforms. So just in Tuesday on Philadelphia in the Democratic primary, a civil rights and defense attorney named Larry Krasner won the nomination. He did it with a lot of Soros money. Soros came in behind him and he stood up and the first thing he said basically was, I'm not going to use the death penalty here. And it will be more interesting to see what happens to charging policies in Philadelphia with someone in 
in control who it is unimaginable that someone like Larry Krasner would be the DA of Philadelphia, even like two or five years ago. That's just not a pattern that we saw. But he's not alone. I mean, there are a whole bunch of cities now. And those prosecutors, I think, are going to have something to say about this new policy of Jeff Sessions and why they see it as out of step with what's best for their communities. Jake, do you think there's any chance there's going to be some kind of legislative slapback of sessions for this? Because you do have Democrats who basically want a more lenient criminal justice policy. And now there's a significant number of of, uh, Republicans who feel the same way. Some libertarians, some sort of who just don't want to spend as many resources. Um, Do you think that there's any chance that legislatively sessions gets reined in? I do think it's possible because the the uh, backlash against mass incarceration has really turned into a bipartisan position. And there, there are lots of people on the right, and as you say, not just libertarians who say, wait a minute, we've got too many people in jail putting nonviolent drug infend- uh, offenders in jail doesn't make any sense. It, in L.A., it just seemed every other shop front was turning into a marijuana dispensary anticipating full legalization and the idea that you can basically do legally in some states what you can get thrown in jail for in neighboring states doesn't make any sense. It's not sustainable. And the drift is towards legalization despite what Sessions is going to try to do. There's also this interesting tension about awareness of the opioid addiction problem. So there was a op-ed, I think, in the Washington Post this week pointing out that in states that have legalized marijuana, there's less of a problem with opioid addiction. And you can see, especially when people get addicted to opioids for pain relief, I mean, marijuana really is a pain relief drug, and it doesn't have the same addictive, physically addictive qualities and terrible consequences that opioid addiction has. So Sessions just totally scoffed at this op-ed and said, like, that this was just essentially made up. And it's yet one example of how just completely impervious to actual evidence the man is. is. Do you think that Sessions is likely to uh, be more lenient on opiate people or the the opiate dealers and addicts because they tend to be white? And from the well, South. that has there's been a lot of discussion about whether that's actually happening. You know, the truth is that there has been some harsh law enforcement against people who are um, caught with opiates. So I'm not sure actually whether it's really as public health oriented the response as um, there's been a sort of assumption that because of that racial difference we're going to see more treatment in public health. I think that that's a really interesting test. Um, but Sessions does not seem inclined to go in that direction. And that's another tension with, you know, other conservatives or libertarians, people who are seeing opiate addiction as evidence that the old war on drug model really didn't work. Not to mention the problem of state budgets and just all of the huge amounts of money we've spent incarcerating people with some legislatures, like including Texas and Oklahoma, are now really dialing back because of all the expenditures. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you, Jacob Weisberg, are sitting back this evening with the little Weisbergs. What are you going to be chattering to them about? I just read a book, David, that was so good. Uh, it's called Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich. Do you know who she is? She, um, she won the Nobel Prize 2015. She's a Ukrainian oral historian. But this book of hers, which is basically about life after the Soviet Union, the last two decades in Russia, such an incredible piece of journalism and literature – it's completely shattering to hear these people talk about the way they've lived 
since the decline of the Soviet Union. And it's the first thing I've read that's made me understand this weird phenomenon of nostalgia that Russians have for the Soviet Union. You kind of think, how can anybody miss the Soviet Union? But when you, when you read this, you completely understand it. And uh, it's just she was someone I'd never read and hadn't heard of, of course, before a year ago. And uh, I now think she's like the greatest journalist in the world. Um, so I hugely recommend this book. It's long. It's dense. It's hard to read. Parts of it are like reading the Gulag Archipelago, which I never finished. But it is the most amazing book I've read is it, in is a it long Is it written time. or it's interviews? It's interviews, but she crafts them into uh, this sort of – polyphonic, you know, voices. And she's, it's funny, you don't hear her voice. She'll occasionally interject or describe something. Uh, She's very much present. You can feel her talking to these people and and drawing them out, even though her voice is mostly absent. Wow. I recommend it. Amazing. Emily? I want to recommend a painter named Ndume Alatashani. Um, he has an exhibit of paintings up right now in the Eastern District of New York courthouse in Brooklyn. It's called Perseverance, and you can still go see it. Or you can just like find him online and look at his work. It's mostly portraiture. He has a kind of amazing story. He was on death row in Tennessee for, I think, 24 years, was, uh, I think, probably wrongfully convicted, not officially exonerated, but there's like a a long, terrible story about how he ended up being blamed for a crime in Memphis, even though he was from St. Louis and says that he had never actually been to Memphis. It's one of those just really tragic stories that come out of our criminal justice system. And he's, I've met him, he's kind of an incredible um, person just as a human being. And this artwork, which he started to do in prison, um, is something he's starting to get critical attention for. And I think it's really beautiful. So again, his name is Ndume Alatashani, and you can look him up. We'll link to his website. Cool. Uh, My chatter is about an amazing story, which I imagine you guys read in The Atlantic, called My Family Slave by a journalist named Alex Tizon. He's a reporter of Filipino descent. And it's about a woman named Lola, who was taken in by his parents in the Philippines in the 1950s uh, as a as a very young woman and ended up taking care of Alex and Alex's siblings when they moved to America and was the family slave, was never paid, um, had no autonomy, no possessions, no independent ability to travel, to move, to do anything, not allowed to stay in touch with their family. And it's about Alex Tizan's own realization of this as he grew up that his family were slaveholders in modern America and his his own inability to kind of really do anything about it. It's an incredible story and actually has an unbelievably sad coda, which is that Tizan himself died suddenly just a couple of weeks ago, right before the story came out. Um, but it's it's a really, really worth reading. I've been trying to read it all week. If any other week I would have I would have read it already, but definitely this weekend. It's I had a really mixed reaction to it. I don't mean to be like ruining your chatter. It's no, totally please. worth reading. Well, I just like Lola, the character he calls a slave um, in the story, she has died. So he can't interview her or really talk to her about her experience. And I just felt like there was a way in which she remained a cipher. And I wish that he had talked to like 
other women who'd had those experiences. It was all from his point of view. And that's necessary given the facts. And I think that he was honest about his own feelings. But I left the story feeling sort of confused about the day-to-day reality behind it to some degree. And I don't, the relationships were complicated, right? And so I just felt like I was craving her perspective. And I, even though I know I can't have it, there was just something unsatisfying about it. Huh. I, this is a this new form of media criticism, which I've noticed, which is people really want the story that wasn't written. Yes, it's true. I mean, the story <laughs> as written, it's a brilliant piece of memoir and an, an incredible portrait of this life and, and his perspective on this life. And I don't know. I mean, yes, he could have written a different story where he interviewed 50 women who have been indentured in the United States and cobbled together their stories, Svetlana Alexeyev style into an oral history. That wasn't the story he had to tell. The story I had to tell was his perspective on being a, a part of a slaveholding family in 1980s America. Right. But as a result, you're not getting this sort of full picture and you have this central character in the story who herself is not speaking and no one is. Um, well, she's no dead. Like her is speaking. <laughs> I know I said that and I recognize that I'm asking for something that wasn't on the page. I mean, you could argue that I, my reaction shows how powerful a story is because I wanted more from it. It just felt like there was something one-sided and a little bit self-serving about the portrayal, even though I realized that he was being quite candid and not necessarily putting his family in a good light. It was a one-sided. It was a memoir story. Yes, it was one-sided. It was his perspective on his family. It's called My Family Slave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's all true. Anyway. I still reacted as I did. Good for you. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of podcasts is at panoply.fm. Our show page is at slate.com slash gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest and leave a comment and rating while you're there. I want to remind you that we have a live show in Denver on June 7th, slate.com slash live for tickets. You should also listen to Jacob's fantastic podcast, Trumpcast, which is necessary, began as a lark, and has become deadly serious and necessary. Ever more in the vital world. to the Republic. Uh, and so that's also Trapped. A, a Slate and Panoply podcast. So listen to Trumpcast for Emily Bazelon and Jacob Weisberg. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.